of Daniel 2, the prophecies of Daniel 4, the prophecies of Daniel 7 were fulfilled in his lifetime. So while Daniel is prophesying, he's saying these things are going to happen. They happen exactly like he says they're going to happen. And because those happened in his lifetime, these very exact prophecies that he makes for the future, there is confidence that they are going to be fulfilled. Some of them fulfilled very exactly in the first coming of Christ. Some of them still to be fulfilled in the future for us. Okay, so Daniel is is the part. He's the great example of this. They give a prophecy. You can test it because it gets fulfilled in their time and you can trust the ones that are still unfulfilled as of our life's time. This is another time I need to um, give you this image. Okay, sometimes prophecies are like skipping rocks. Um, The prophet will throw up a prophecy out there and something will skip right in front of him, and it'll be kind of a little shadow first fulfillment. And, and maybe that will skip again and skip again until the final ultimate fulfillment takes place way in the future. And sometimes those skipping rocks skip over our head chronologically, and it's in our future. But the rocks are skipping through. That's going to happen um, in, at the very end of Daniel and in Daniel chapter 8 with this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He's clearly one of the skips of the rock that is fulfilled with this guy who does some awful things to the Jews. But ultimately what, what Antiochus Epiphanes does is fulfilled in the Antichrist. So Antiochus is just a skip. One of the problems in interpreting prophecy is you have to understand how many skips are there, Okay. Um, prophets said that the Israelites would return to the land. Well, they did that in 536. Well, they did it again in 1948. So there's skips there. And the question we, we don't know right now is, is the most recent return to the land, the final return to the land, are they going to be scattered again and then return again? We don't know how many times the rock skips very often. The other thing I want to encourage you is this. Uh, back in the fall of t- t- 2016, I preached 12 messages on Daniel a lot of detail. Um, It was an election year, and I felt like it was really important in that election year to communicate this. God is in control of history. No matter what happens, God is in control. Of your personal circumstances, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, and the lion's den, God's there for you. But he's also in control of history, removing and putting in leaders, uh, the Babylonians, the Persians. Nebuchadnezzar's out. Um, Darius the Mede is in. Darius is out. Cyrus is in. Um, God is in control of history. And that's more important now than it was even in 2016. Daniel can be a challenging book. Here's what Andrew Hill says. The book is an enigma written in two languages, Aramaic and Hebrew, composed in two genres, narrative and visionary literature, narrated in two voices, third person and first person, and organized in a two-part structure. The first half is stories. The second half is visions. The, the book has all these things, and they don't always match, okay? One of the problems is Hebrews, uh, Daniel chapter 1 through 2.1 is in Hebrew. Starting in 2.2, it changes to Aramaic until you get to chapter 8. Then it changes back into Hebrew. Well, that'd be really nice if everything changed at 8, but everything changes in 7, so it's, it's, it's a really an enigma to how to put together the structure of the book, and I've struggled with it over the years. Um, but Danny Hayes says this, and this is going to focus us. This exciting book, however, is not really about the man Daniel, even though he's quite a remarkable character. The book is about God. 
The book proclaims that no matter how bad things may appear on the surface, God is still sovereign and in control, carefully moving history forward to the culmination that he has planned and decreed. God is in control. Here's two messages from Daniel. God's kingdom will not be destroyed. The Babylonians were trying to do it. The Persians trying to do it. They couldn't because God is too powerful. And God's dominion will never end because God will eventually fulfill all of these prophecies that were partially fulfilled in Christ's first coming will ultimately be fulfilled in his second coming when Jesus Christ is installed as the ruler and the king and that rule will never end. Until then, there's a succession of kings and kingdoms that will come and they will rise and they will fall, but God is in control of it all. Now, I absolutely will not be able to make it through all of my message today. I did not first hour, um, but there are 12 messages back in 2016 that you can see, and there's some resources out at the Connection Center. Some of them will be helpful with the things I'm going to have to move through really quickly. Um, There's one out there that is really um, the historical span of what Daniel prophesies that we know have already happened. There's a full history outline that I've given you from Daniel's time in 605 all the way through the birth of Christ, because Daniel has a lot to say about that time in his, right in his near future, and then 600 years later with the birth of Christ. And so I've given you the outline of that time that Daniel predicts. Um, I've also given you by Andrew Hill, the historical background of just Daniel's time. What's going on? How did all of that happen that Daniel ends up in Babylon? One of the things I wish I was able to get to today is Daniel's 70 weeks. Um, Daniel 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9 is a prophecy that Daniel gives that sets out exactly how long it will be until Christ comes. And when you do the calculations in the right way and you change from solar years to lunar years, a lunar calendar, which is what they were working on, it works out perfectly to the day from the decree of of Artaxerxes to go back and rebuild the temple, March 4th of 444 BC. 183,788 days later, Exactly the number of days that Daniel says is the triumphal entry. It is exact. That article will give you all the exact stuff. I've got it on some slides we won't get to. And then I have one other slide um, that I'm calling uh, eschatological sanity. For those of people who are really trying to figure it all out, um, Danny Hayes has an article here about some people who would say that the 10 kingdoms that are in Daniel chapter 8 is um, the European Union. Well, When all of that was really popular, there were 10 nations in the European Union. Now there's 23. Um, So it's probably not the European Union. Who's it going to be? I don't know. We can't figure some of this stuff out. So just relax. You're not in control of figuring it out. That's not the message of Daniel. The message of Daniel is not go figure it out. The message of Daniel is this. God is in control. I'm going to recommend two um, books for two totally different groups of people out there. Okay. Um, There's a commentary on the book of Daniel called Against the Flow, and it's written by an Oxford mathematician, John Lennox. He's an apologist, but he is an Oxford mathematician, an Oxford mathematician giving you exegesis of prophetic material. If you're that person, this is your book. If you like that book, you're not going to like the other book, which is a very biblical, practical, wonderful commentary by Del Ralph Davis. Everything Del Ralph Davis writes is really great. Um, it's practical, it's inspiring, it's convicting. If you like Del Ralph Davis, you probably are not going to like John Lennox. If you like John Lennox, you're probably not going to like Del Ralph Davis, although I see some people in the room who are going to love them both, okay? Um, 
great commentaries on Daniel, very different perspectives. Here's what's going on with Daniel. Daniel is one of our exilic prophets. He's prophesying during the time when the southern kingdom of Judah is in exile in Babylon, and his entire ministry takes place in that exilic time. Um, During his time, the Jews are allowed to go back, but he probably doesn't go back. It may be that he was too old. Um, It may be that he stayed behind to uh, continue to shepherd the community that was in Babylon because the the Babylonian community continues to flourish. Um, Again, I have pointed this out. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all overlap. Jeremiah was the oldest. He spent his entire ministry in Jerusalem talking about the judgment that was going to come. He saw the judgment come. Ezekiel spends his ministry in Babylon, and he is basically saying judgment is coming. It does come, and then he predicts restoration in the future. Daniel is going to spend his entire ministry for a long time, 70 years. Daniel's probably a teenager, 13, 15 years old, when he's taken into captivity. When he's in the lion's den, he's 83 years old. He's an old man. Um, By the way, that's not an encouraging message. What it means is this, even when you're old, God's going to test you. (laughs) Uh, So be ready for it. But these guys are all working during this exilic time. The time that's being talked about, and this is a chart that's on the back of one of those handouts that's out there, the time we're talking about starts off with the Babylonian rule, the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar mostly. What's going to happen is during the time of Daniel, the Babylonians are going to be supplanted by the Persians and the Medes, and we're going to get the Persians and the Medes. Daniel is going to live during that time, and he's going to clearly prophesy in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, and then explicitly in Daniel chapter 8 about the coming of the Greeks. During that time, there's going to be a focus on this Antiochus Epiphanes guy who's a skipping rock, who's a preview of the Antichrist. He's also going to look forward to the Roman um, period, and there's going to be some clear allusions to what's going on in the Roman period. But then at that point, he's going to look far ahead and he's going to jump way into the future to a kingdom that we probably can't identify yet. There's 10 of them and it's not the European Union, at least right now. Okay, so that's what's going on here. I'm going to give you some summaries. I'm going to get through as much of this as I can. And then at some point, I'm just going to stop and go to the end of my message. Okay, Bruce Wilkinson says this, Daniel, sometimes referred to as the apocalypse of the Old Testament, presents a majestic sweep of prophetic history. The Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and Romans will come and go, but God will establish his people forever. Nowhere is this theme more apparent than in the life of Daniel, the young God-fearing Jew transplanted from his homeland and raised in Babylon. His adventures and those of his friends in the palace, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, show that even during the exile, God has not forgotten his chosen people. So in chaotic times, God hasn't forgotten you, and you can be faithful like this group of kids. And through Daniel, God provides dreams and interpretations of dreams and visions designed to convince Jew and Gentile alike that wisdom and power belong to him alone. These dreams and visions, by the way, God God speaks to pagans in dreams with no words. They get dreams, but there's no words because a believer needs to interpret them. Consistent throughout scripture, unbelievers get dreams, no words, so a believer will be there and be able to interpret it and point them in the right direction to to God. Believers get dreams and visions with words. Sometimes they need to be interpreted, but most of the time they know it. They understand what God is saying to them. This book is full of both dreams for pagans that Daniel's going to interpret, and then his own visions. The visions start in chapter 7. It's a fascinating book. So, 
Who, where, when, how does all this fit together? Daniel was born into a royal or well-to-do family in Judah, and as a young man was part of the first wave of Babylonian deportations in 605. We know that he is um, well-to-do, maybe royal, because when Nebuchadnezzar in 605 takes the first wave, he's skimming off the top all of the the leaders, um, the most highly trained already, so that they won't lead a rebellion and he can take them to Babylon to train them. Daniel is more of an administrator than a religious figure throughout his life. His messages span 70 years from 605 to 536 as he watched the fall of the Assyrian Empire early in his life to the Babylonians and then the Babylonians to the Persians. While Ezekiel lived among the exiles, Daniel lived in the palace. So who's the audience? Who's, who's this written for originally? The original audience of Daniel were the Jews living in exile in Babylon under Babylonian dominance, and then later those who, who would return to rebuild the temple and the nation. Interestingly, much of Daniel is written in Aramaic, and thus it had an intentional audience with Gentile kings and nations of his day. This book is written for Daniel's people to say, hey, look, God's really in control. He's saving us, and he's got a plan for us. For those who, at the end of Daniel's life, were going to go back to Israel and they were going to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel with the help of Haggai and Zechariah that we'll talk about later, um, those people would have been encouraged by this as well because it's saying, yeah, there's still a future. We may have been in exile, but there is still a future. But because half of the book, the center of the book, is written in the, the language not of the Jews, but the language of the Gentiles of the day, the lingua franca of the day, Aramaic, it clearly has a message for them to say, God is in control of all of this. It's a fascinating book. When was Daniel written? Daniel began uh, interpreting dreams in 603. He's taken in 605, probably at about 13 years old, about 15 years old. Um, He starts interpreting the dreams approximately two years into his deportation. His prophetic ministry continued until at least 536. He began this ministry when he was a teenager, continued until he was at least 83 years old. Like Ezekiel, Daniel grew up um, in Judah during the reforms of King Josiah. Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all lived during the high point of of Judah's history under the reign of of Josiah, a great king. But here's what happens. Let me put this all together for you. In 612 BC, Nabopolassar, who is Nebuchadnezzar's dad, Nabopolassar attacks the Assyrians at Nineveh, their capital, and he defeats them. They then make an alliance with the Egyptians And there's going to be another battle with the Egyptians. So the Assyrians and the Egyptians are now going to get together. It's during that time that Josiah, for some reason, decides to get involved in the battle. And he dies in 609 BC, this great king, paving the way for four kings after him who were horrible. He dies in 609. So then in 605, Nabopolassar goes and this alliance of Assyrians and Egyptians, he defeats them at the Battle of Carchemish. At that point, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, at that point, Nebuchadnezzar goes down to Egypt chasing those guys because he's going to put an end to them. On his way back, he's going to stop in Jerusalem. He's going to pick up Daniel, and he's going to take Daniel back to Babylon in 605. One of the reasons that he goes back so quickly is he finds out that his dad has died, and he's going to be the king unless he doesn't get back soon enough and there'll be a usurper. So he grabs Daniel and a bunch of these guys who are going to support him, and he brings them back to Babylon, this city. Showed you this picture last week. I want you to see it again. This is an impressive city. 
um, one of the wonders of the world, uh, this city. Um, this Euphrates River runs through. There's all kinds of irrigation canals. Last week, I pointed out there in the middle of the picture is the Ishtar Gate. Let me show you a little up-close reconstruction. This is what the Ishtar Gate would have looked like, colors and everything. They're all right. Um, an amazingly impressive thing. Built during Daniel's lifetime. The Ishtar Gate was the eighth gate to the inner city of Babylon. It was constructed during Daniel's lifetime at about 575. Remember, he's, he goes there in 605, and he's there until 536 by the order of King Nebuchadnezzar II on the north side of the city. It was excavated in the early 20th century, and a reconstruction using the original bricks is now shown in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. Here's the real thing today. This was an impressive city. If you're thinking ancient city, broken down walls, old bricks, this is not what this is. This is an opulent city, lots of gold all over the place. Now, why was Daniel written? Daniel provides an inspiring example of being faithful to God in the midst of hostile, chaotic, and constantly changing circumstances. That's Daniel and his friends. Yes, it's an example that's inspiring these guys were faithful. But this man of character is also responsible for interpreting dreams and visions that set forth God's prophetic plan for the ages with a focus on the Gentile world and the work of the Messiah. To interpret those passages, literally, you need an Oxford mathematician. But most people say, oh, that's too complicated. Just tell me about the lion's den and, you know, the fiery furnace. But if you get into the prophecies, it's incredibly inspiring to see how in control God is of everything that ever happens in our world. So let's get into the content. How is this arranged? It starts off with the first chapter that I really think gives us the message of the book in the names of the four young men who were taken captive. Then the book turns into Aramaic, and we get these stories that are taking place in the palace that are all stories of um, Nebuchadnezzar trying to assert his power and God putting him in his place. Then when the last Babylonian king, Belshazzar, when he dies and the Persians take over, we get now a bunch of visions that Daniel himself has that looks far into the future. The first half of the book is really communicating to this. God is more powerful than the kings of Babylon and Persia. God's more powerful. You may, other kings may say, we're the most powerful, God's the most powerful. The second half of the book is showing us that God is in detailed control of history, culminating in the work of the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite term for himself comes from Daniel 7.14. I'll show that to you in just a moment. Here's the chart of the book. Once again, let me just point out the first chapter and a verse is all in Hebrew. And then it moves to being in Aramaic. I wish for symmetry in my brain, I wish it would stop and start in Hebrew at chapter 7, because that's when everything changes from dreams to visions, but it doesn't. There's an overlap there. And then at the last part, you get it in Hebrew again. The first part of the book, chapter 1, is these names that I'm going to tell you about that capture the whole message of the book in their four names. The next part of the book is going to show you these dreams that show God is powerful, And then you're going to get these visions that are going to say God is in sovereign control of history. So what's the message of Daniel? Daniel, the ideal ideal Jewish captive during the Babylonian meeting and Persian dominance, interpreted dreams and visions which revealed the history of the world as it related to Gentile nations, culminating in the victory of God through Messiah's first and second coming in order to demonstrate God's sovereign control of nations, to remind the returnees of their great future, and to encourage them to be faithful like Daniel during during turbulent times. 
Daniel is going to talk about the history of the world future until Messiah and after until he comes back with a focus on the Gentile nations. Its twin book is Zechariah. Zechariah does the same thing, but it doesn't focus on the Gentile nations. It's going to focus on Israel. So in order to really understand the scope of prophetic history, you have to understand Daniel and Zechariah. And if you understand Daniel and Zechariah, you're far on your way to understanding the book of Revelation. If you don't understand Daniel and Zechariah well, Revelation's just going to confuse you. You really have to understand these books. Daniel, the Gentile kingdoms, Zechariah, the nation of Israel. So let me get into this. When I went through Daniel um, years ago, Throughout the book, there's these reversals. This is all of chapter one. And, and almost every chapter has this reversal where it looks like somebody else is in control. Everything changes. And at the end, God is the one who's in control. The Babylonians seem like, hey, they've taken them captive. And, you know, they're, they've defeated the nation. But at the end, Daniel is the one who's got power and who's being blessed and who has influence and authority. Everything is reversed. Um, Here's how this starts. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It starts off in the first verses saying God is sovereign, not Babylon, not Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar did not get the king. God gave him into his hand. Even the defeat of God's people is a part of God's sovereign plan. Folks, we can trust everything that's happening. God's got a plan for it. It may not be our plan. It may not be to our liking. But the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Um, And it was tragic because he took some of the vessels of the house of the God. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in his treasury of his God. It sure looks like God is not in control, but even this verse says God is in control. Among these were Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. You know those last three guys is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to try to shift your perspective to getting their real names. The chief of the eunuchs gave them these names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called uh, Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. Um, What's up with these names? Go with me here. Daniel. Don is the word for judge. El, Elohim, God. God is judge. Okay, so God is my judge. The next name, I love this, Hananiah, Hana is the word for grace. And Yah at the end, Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. God is judge, Yahweh is gracious. The next one is is fascinating. It's four parts. Me is who, Ish is what, um, or is, Ah is a what and God, who. Who is what God is? <laughs> Who is like God? The positive message, there's no one like God. It's, it's asking a question, but it, it gives you the, who is like God? There's no one like God. And then the last guy, Azariah, this is our word we've talked about a number of times. Azar is the word for help, desperate help when you need it. If you don't get it, you're not going to survive. Azariah, Yahweh is our help. When you put all these together, it says this, God is my judge and he is gracious There's no one like him, and he will help us. That is a great message, folks. In the middle of chaotic times, persecution, wondering about the future, let's just remember this. The incomparable Lord, there's no one like him. He's a gracious judge, and he helps his people. 
That's Daniel. If you don't hold on to anything else, hold on to that. Now, as you move into the the sweep of all of the history that's going on here, I've recommended this again and again and again, and little by little, people are reading it. Um, There's a 24-page article you can get on the internet um, called The Fate of Empires by John Glubb. I encourage you to read it. It talks about what cycles civilizations go through. Most of them last about 250 years, and they end in a state of decadence that is um, mostly characterized by frivolity, where heroes are entertainers and sports figures. That's the end of the cycle. Hmm. I got to get home to watch the Little League World Series. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a dream. (laughs) And he's going to not be able to interpret the dream. He doesn't know what's going on because there's really no words in it. It's just visions. He brings his sham charlatans in And he says, "Um, I need you guys to tell me the dream. And they say, go ahead, tell us what it is, and we'll tell you what it means. He goes, no, I'm not even telling you what it is. They say, nobody can do that um, except the gods, which is exactly right. So they go looking for Daniel. They're going to find Daniel. um, And Daniel's going to say, I I can get this from the Lord. He gets together with his friends. He's going to pray about the dream. And God's going to make it known to him. So he makes an appointment. Daniel, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He praises God. You're the one who reveals these things. And then he's going to request an audience with Nebuchadnezzar. And he's going to say, Nebuchadnezzar, I know what your dream is. Here's the dream. You had a vision of this big statue. The statue was gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then mixtures. And then he's going to interpret it. And he's going to say this. Um, the gold is the Babylonian empire, but that's going to fade away. And that's going to give way to another empire, the Persian empire. That's going to fade away. It's going to give way to another empire, the Greek empire. That's going to fade and give away to another empire, the Roman empire. By the way, we know all of this happened exactly with all. And all of these images are perfect um, to represent these empires. But then he's going to look ahead and he says, in the future, there's going to be another mixed iron and clay empire. Um, And that one seems to be the rock skipping way into the future. Then what we're going to read is this. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of a mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will happen in the future so that the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. What's going to happen is a big rock is going to be cut out of a mountain and that rock is going to smash that entire um, statue to nothing. And then that rock is going to last forever. And we know that the rock is Jesus Christ and his kingdom that's going to last forever. That's what happens in Daniel chapter 2. And all of that plays out in Daniel's lifetime, and we've seen it. We know we can trust everything he says, even the things that haven't been fulfilled. Daniel chapter 3 is another one of these reversals where the, the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are placed into the fiery furnace. But these guys, because they know that God is their judge, they know that he is gracious, there's no one like him, and he will help them. They say, throw us in the furnace. We're not bowing down to your idol. And they say this, and even if God doesn't rescue us, we're still not bowing down to your idol. That's the kind of faith this book engenders.
um, I'm going to go through this really quickly. Um, One of the things that happens in the book of Daniel is that um, archaeology has just confirmed again and again, not only that all of these things like the kiln that they put the fiery furnace in, for years they just said, oh, they didn't have the technology to do it. And then we discovered the actual kilns that they used that would have been this hot. Um, this is the list of the rulers of Babylon, Nabopolassar, who's Nebuchadnezzar's king, or Nebuchadnezzar's father, and then Ewell Meriduk, uh, Negalazar, and then Nabonidus. This is, just trust me, let's go Nebuchadnezzar to Nabonidus. Nabonidus um, is the guy we know in, in um, history for a long time as the last king. The reason we know that is because we have this thing called the Babylonian Chronicle, um, it's basically a daytimer of all of the kings of Babylon, and it's fascinating because there's a period in Daniel chapter 4 where Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy. There's a section in the Babylonian Chronicle that's like, he did this, he had some bacon this day, he went to Stobie's, and then, you know, he went to um, uh, Old Bart's for lunch, and, uh, and then there's a four-year period, you get, get nothing. <laughs> and then he comes back on the scene, just like it, it says in the book of Daniel. But one of the things that's interesting is we have this other thing called the Nabonidus Cylinder. Nabonidus was the last official king of the Babylonian Empire. And this cylinder talks about his adventures because he loved to go on these sightseeing adventures. He loved to go um, finding historic places. But for years and years and years, we knew Nabonidus as the last king of the Babylonians when the Persians took over. But Daniel is going to have an encounter with a guy named Belshazzar um, that we have no record of until we found the Nabonidus stone. And the Nabonidus stone says, I, Nabonidus, am sick and tired of all the ruling. I'm going on a long vacation. 31A is where I'm headed. And I'm putting my son, Belshazzar, in charge. Bam. Confirmation that the Bible was right all along. And in all of that, God is going to um, confirm his control and his power. This Belshazzar is the the last ruler in Babylon, and he's going to take the items that Nebuchadnezzar took from the the temple in Jerusalem. He's going to take them out and have a party with them. When that happens, there's writing on the wall. When this writing on the wall shows up, what it writes is this, meeny, meeny, tikal upfarsin. We know what it was writing. Meeny, meeny, tikal upfarsin. Um, Maybe because they've been drinking too much, but they have no idea what it is. So they go find Daniel because somebody knows, hey, there's this guy around. He's really old, but I think he could probably figure this out. They go get Daniel, and Daniel looks at it, okay? I have an, an English version of it up there on the screen right now. If you know what it is, don't, but already. Do, do you see what it is? It's very clear. Anybody got it? Let me give it to you in a different way. Anybody got it yet? Where are all my finance and banker guys? Come on, help me out here. You should know it. Here's what it says. Dime, dime, quarter, nickel. Meeny, meeny, tickle up farson in English. The equivalent would be dime, dime, quarter, nickel. Amina is a small coin, and it, and it means to number something. You're numbered, you're numbered. We've counted you up. We've scored you, Belshazzar. You've been weighed. A tekel is a shekel. Um, it, it means to weigh something. 
Uh, we've scored you, we've weighed you, and parson is a half of a, a shekel. It's a divided shekel. Your kingdom is going to be divided. And there's an allusion there, parson, to Persia. The idea of that is exactly from this wonderful movie, A Knight's Tale, where they show up and the king is laying down and what they say to him is, you have been weighed, you have been measured, you have been found wanting, your kingdom will be divided. It's exactly what happens in Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 6, we get another reversal of Daniel looks like he's in trouble in the lion's den, but he trusts God and Daniel is um, exalted in the lion's den so that at the end he is in, in power one more time. In Daniel chapter 7, there's a really important phrase that shows up here. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. This Daniel 7.14 verse, where, where the son of man is in the clouds, and he's coming to the ancient of days, is Jesus' favorite way to identify himself. By the way, the ancient of days, this is part of the, the Aramaic sec- section. The word ancient in um, Aramaic, I'm going to say it for you. The word ancient in Aramaic is antique. God's the antique of days. He gets more valuable with every passing year. Uh, he's the antique of days. But the Son of Man comes, and notice, it's the Son of Man with clouds of heaven. Um, Jesus loves this title for himself. And in Mark 14, look what's going on. The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I'm the Daniel 7 dude. And if you're the Daniel 7 dude, then you're the Daniel 3 guy in the fiery furnace, one like the Son of God. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? He's claiming to be God. All this Daniel stuff is fulfilled in Jesus. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are parallels in, a, in, in beasts and the statue. Um, go check it out. <laughs> in Daniel chapter 9, God reveals this plan that's very clearly set out in these 70 weeks. And I'm going to have to just uh, skip through some of this. In fact, let me do this. Done here. I'm going to skip all the way to right there. Um, If you put the 70 weeks together, here's what has happened. Um, Daniel has realized we've been in captivity 70 years, and Jeremiah prophesied, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 29, we were going to be in captivity for 70 years. It's coming to an end, and it does exactly. You can figure it two ways to get 70 years. So I'm not worried about the 70 years because I can make 70 years exact two different ways, okay? It's, it happens exactly. And so Daniel's thinking about these 70 years. He gets this vision of this other 70 things, but it's 70 groups of seven. 69 of them go together. And if you put them together right and you make the calculations, it's on the sheet out there. You mathematical guys get it. If you recognize what is absolutely true, they're working on a lunar calendar, 12 months of 30 days. They're not working on a solar calendar. If you do the calculations with the lunar calendar, from when Daniel says it's going to happen, they are told to go back and rebuild the the city, not the walls, rebuild the city, 
until literally 188,000, 178,880 days. Exactly the number of days is the triumphal entry. From the decree, Artaxerxes, March 4th, 444 BC, you can go back and rebuild the city to the triumphal entry is the exact number of days. Folks, if you don't believe in a literal fulfillment of prophecy, I don't know what you're doing with what happens in the Bible. These things are going to be fulfilled literally. Now, it may skip around and skip over our head, and it may have something that looks like it's being fulfilled, but it's going to be something in the future. So what does all this mean? I think Daniel gives us a message of sovereign control. Daniel answered before the king, and he said, As for the mystery about the, which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. God knows history, and he's controlling it. And Jesus knows that. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you want to know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from, from above. For this reason, he who has delivered to me to you has, has uh, greater sin. He basically says, you have no authority. God has all the authority. God is in sovereign control. And all of this is going to play out until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled when Jesus is teaching. At the end of his description of all these horrible things that are going to happen to Jerusalem, he says this, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Daniel's thing. Then you're going to have to fill this in with Zechariah's thing where Christ is going to come back and he's going to rule over a kingdom. If you are the Messiah, he said, tell us. They said, I tell you, but you won't believe me. If I asked you, wouldn't you an answer? But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all said, are you the Son of God? This is now Luke's account. You're saying you're Daniel 7. Are you the Son of God, Daniel 3? He replied, you say that I am. You got it right. Then they said, what do we need? Do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from your own lips. Daniel is essential in Christ making the claim that he's the Messiah, that he is God, and they put him to death for it. And that was a substitutionary death for our sins. So what do we do with all this? Where does this fit? I want to remind you, this fits by giving us an important message. God is the judge. He is gracious. There's no one like him, and he will help you in difficult times. Daniel sets forth the history of God under the sovereign control of God, past, present, and future, with a focus on Gentile kingdoms and messianic promises. And they are specific promises. And Daniel specifically predicts the first coming of Christ to redeem and the second coming of Christ to rule. He does that very clearly. So what should we believe? The Lord's powerful. He can't be overcome by any forces of the world. Unswerving faithfulness to God always pays off in the end. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It always pays off. Be faithful to him. God is in complete control of history, no matter how it may look at the time. For them, they must have been thinking the world's coming apart, and God has forgotten us. God is sovereign. How should we behave? Fully dedicated to God in the face of any opposition, fully confident in God in the face of any persecution, and fully hopeful in God in the face of any tribulation. As our days begin to look more and more like Daniel's days, chaotic, it doesn't look like God's in control, and we're in the minority, persecution is increasing, it's becoming more and more difficult to take a stand, trust God in the midst of all that. 
So next steps, I would tell you this. Make a pre-commitment to be faithful to God no matter what comes. Commit now that no matter what comes, fiery furnace, lion's den, persecution, loss of job, loss of influence, ridicule, no matter what happens, make the commitment now you're going to be faithful to God. And no matter what happens to your community around you, you will be faithful to him. Pre-commit now before it happens. And hold on knowing that we're fighting a battle he's already won. Daniel predicted it. And half of it is fulfilled. The rest of it's going to be fulfilled. He's already won this battle. These songs we're going to sing, they pull it all together. So let's stand up and sing affirmation that we believe what Daniel says.